Soft Power Radio on KWNK 97.7 LPFM. Today, as part of our Black History Month special series honoring the local community, we are in conversation with Jamal Tarkington. Jamal has been living and playing music in Reno since he came to UNR on a music scholarship in the early 1990s. He's performed jazz, ska, soul, hip-hop, the list goes on everywhere from casinos to underground all-ages spots. He sold out now-long-forgotten venues and played intimate gigs at coffee shops. Singer, saxophonist, DJ, and genuinely down-to-earth person, Jamal's ease and comfort with the art of music is rivaled only by his approachability and warm, always-smiling manner. He's got a lot of stories to tell. We'll be talking about his background, from big bands to ska bands, and the different communities that have shaped him over the years. So tell me a bit about your family, like what you just recently learned kind of about your family background in music. Um, You know, I knew growing up, like, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, like, I guess generalize for, like, people on the West Coast who are black African people who live in the United States are predominantly Christian or Baptist. A lot of them. There are a small amount of people in my family who are Muslim. There were a small amount of people who were uh, um, um, I don't know if you have you ever heard of the Hebrew Israelites? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those <laughs> motherfuckers are crazy, bro. Oh yeah, and swear less. Oh. <laughs> Those cats are crazy, right? Yeah, well, so tell me about your uncle and this program of his that you recently came across. So my, I have a buddy that lives in Sacramento and he's a notorious record digger and his name is Steve and we we talk all the time, multiple times. I actually just got off the phone with him this morning. And so, like, he all, he, if I know there's records he's looking for, if there's records that he knows I'm looking for, we'll help each other. And so he was like, oh, you know, I, I brought up the fact that I have this, like, holy grail list. And he was like, well, you should send it to me. And I was like, you know, well, a couple of these things are actually from San Francisco and Sacramento. So, like, if there was a good chance of finding them, they would probably be there. And so I told him about this record. It's called What Will Tomorrow Bring by uh, my uncle. His name is Wayman, Wayman Hall. And he had this record, I don't know if it was 74 or 75. And uh, I remember seeing it when I was a kid. I didn't realize the relevance of it or how big it was or what anything. To... I had, you know, I was really young at this time, like a damn near baby. So when I got older and I saw the record and realized, oh, you know, my dad used to sing a little bit when he was in high school and my uncles had a band that had a little bit of success called the California Malibus. But my uncle Wayman was the one who had probably the most success. And uh, he had played in both of those groups with my dad and my uncles. So uh, my friend had sent me this link on eBay. And it was this program, which was his 25th anniversary. I thought it was from a show, but it was, I guess he was saying it's it was his 25th anniversary from professionally playing music, starting to play music. And you read the thing. He was like trying to inspire people from our hometown of Stockton to uh, like do all they can to get more exposure and do things on a, on a higher level and a more professional level. Um, I hadn't realized everything as far as the history of possible like success that my uncle's band, the California Malibus, they traveled overseas and they played these shows for like different like 
service, like for servicemen over there and stuff. Um, and then they also base tours around that. So I had no idea about that. My uncle Wayman, who we're talking about, um, put out a single and had some success with the single. Um, and how it all came back up was this Japanese company is going to help me reissue the 45. And what's the name of the record label? Uh, what is the dude's name? No, is, the name of the record label that came out. Oh, Jamal. Yeah, so it's my first name. And my cousin, who is, is my uncle's firstborn daughter, firstborn child, she keeps telling me, like, it, he, don't, he doesn't know another Jamal. Like, you were, you know what I mean? At that time, you were just born, like, like, and so I don't. you were his brother's kid, right? No, um, different, different, oh, different connection, but my dad and my uncle Wayman were super close. Now, my dad's brothers, he sang in a group with them, and he also sang in a group with my dad, so it's like, he wasn't my, my dad's brother, but he, he damn near functioned like it. Um, he had a stroke. This was when I was in high school. I was a senior. And uh, his youngest son was a sophomore. And that's how close we were. He went to my high school, so he came and lived with us for a year. Because his mom was taking care of my uncle and getting him back on his feet. And he actually did recover from that stroke and live for for a number of years after that. So, uh, so you didn't know any of this stuff. I had no idea about any of the success. Like he, you know, yeah, there was, there was. And how did, I think you told me, how did, uh, the record get recorded? In California at the state fair in the early sixties, or I think this was late set, late sixties and mid seventies. They had a, like a, like a talent competition, like a local. So there, there was a group that had dudes from. Sly and the Family Stone in it, who were like the favorites. And my uncle's band beat that band in the talent contest. And that's how he linked up with this dude that was from Sacramento. And they started this label called Jamal Records and put this 45 out. But despite the fact that you didn't like know any of these specifics, right? Like growing up, you knew that like people in your family like were musically inclined, right? I had tons of singers in my family. Um... My cousin Trisel, the daughter of Wayman, who I'm talking about, Deneen. My cousin Deneen is a is a ridiculous singer. Um, her husband, who passed away from COVID, rest in peace. Um, ridiculous piano player and singer. Um, her daughter is a ridiculous singer. My uncle Keith, my uncle Ronnie, my uncle Richie. They had a group called the California Malibus. All like I grew up seeing these people sing in harmony, and I like. It took me getting in groups where people were singing where I realized that people just don't sing like that, you know? And then, and I also realized that, like, a lot of that came from the church, you know? Was, I'm, I, like, in my current understanding or belief or whatever, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, you know? But I do think that there's, like, I see why the church was so, still is. I mean, not to be weird, and I'm not talking, I definitely won't say any names. I have friends that were straight crips, killers, like sold crack in East Stockton. And they're online right now. They're doing shit in the community. They're some of the most positive people I know, and they all love Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I can't knock that. You know what I mean? I mean, not to say I can't knock that, but, I mean, whatever someone needs to do to make, you know what I mean? I can't. 
I can't. Now, if we want to talk about truth, we want to talk about evidence, we want to talk about facts. That's something different we can have. But, you know, as far as your inspiration to do what you need to do, man, I can't do anything but be thankful for them brothers to be. Because, you know, it was hectic. It was hectic when I grew up. So it was like, it was crazy. And, and it's good to see those people. Some of them haven't, haven't made those changes, you know, and it's very evident. So. It's, and it, but as far as the musical part, yeah, it seems like for yeah people in your family, um, and in general, maybe this goes, you know, for a lot of people around the country, kind of uh, the church is like the outlet for music stuff and for certain types of creativity, right? We have a friend, very close family friend, they're called the Solas, and uh, they're Greek-Italian family. And when my uncle passed away, my cousin, who went to school with me, her, the Sola's sons were friends of all of ours, so and were very close. So we we went to the funeral for my uncle, and when we got out of the funeral, she looked at me and she was like, "Is church like that all the time?" You know what I mean? She was like that, and she, this is a church. This is a Christian church going woman. She was like, you know what I mean? Not to be weird. She's lived in Stockton. It's and it's not that she's not. A, she knows black people. She knows people of color and she looked at me and was like is it's and i said well you you have to realize that like my uncle his sister as you read in that program our whole family on that side comes out of the church so not only is it a church but it's like those people give a lot of money to the church so i mean it's a it's a it's a production it's i mean they had a uh 60 something channel alan heath board in the church but she was referring to, just so I understand what you mean, just that, like, the service and everything it was, was just really awesome. It was soulful as shit. And that's what I said. My uncle was a, you know, legendary Stockton, Central California gospel singer. And his daughter, who she finally got up and did sing at the service. Um, but, yeah, it, it was, you know, it was it was something out of a movie, man. And I And it was good for me to actually see that because as... As not to say antithesis or whatever I am to like those like kind not say those that kind of form of religion and how I see things now. Um, it was good for me to see like the power and the connection, and it's like not to be weird, but what what Mrs. Sola was talking about was like that is inherently African. What is going on in that church? You know what I mean? You can go to Presbyterian church. You can go to a Catholic church. You can go to all these other different denominations of, you know, of Christianity. And until you step into that black Baptist church, that's what, you know what I mean? And it's weird. And it's noticeable for me because I'm just like, like I said, I grew up in that, but I haven't been in it in a long time. And when, you know, it, it definitely was, it was, it was good to see that. Say that you would love me
was What Will Tomorrow Bring by Jamal's uncle, Waymond Hall. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Jamal Tarkington about his musical roots, which, as he's learned only quite recently, go quite deep in his family. So let's talk about your, you know, beginnings playing music and stuff, right? So what instrument did you start on and what was your trajectory as a kid playing music? I started playing bassoon. Um, and was that your... Did your parents suggest it? Or is it something no, you just wanted no. to do? No, Well, my dad was a musician and a singer. So, like, he, he told me, he was like, you know, you should try to play something if you if you feel... if do you And I was like, yeah, I would think I would want to try to try to play something. I mean, it's funny when I think about it because it's like, at that time, before I started playing, the only thing I really liked was, like, rap. Like, that's what I was into. We, I mean, I don't even know if we called it rap or hip. I'm talking when I was 10 years old or something, 12 years old. Um, was really into Run DMC and really into Boogie Down Productions and Big Daddy Kane and stuff like that. So uh, he asked me, did I want to play? And I said, yeah, I had a friend. Uh, I guess originally what happened was there was a guy who lived in the neighborhood who taught the youth or- orchestra. And he had a bunch of instruments at his house. And we would try. He would get us to try certain things to see what we would and he had a bassoon i'd never even heard of a bassoon before so i started playing that and uh got a good sound out of it and uh he showed me some scales and then we started learning to read music and then it was i don't know i can't even remember probably when that was but it was seventh grade when my dad was like do you want to play like in band and i was like yeah and so i'd already started reading music and i played sax I had an alto sax at first, and then um, there was an educator from the high school, Mr. Mel Wan from Franklin High School, and he heard me play at one of the concerts, and he kind of grabbed me and was like, you know, I'm gonna, I, I think you got some talent, and he 
he made this comment. It was like I was telling you before. He made this comment to me that was like, I didn't understand fully what he was talking about at the time. That he was like, you don't even know where you come from. And he was like, you don't, you don't know your people, but I know your people. And he's like, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And he's like, it's up to you if you're going to take it. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I want you to play Barry Sachs in the high school band. So I was like, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? It was just like, I, I didn't even really think about it. And then I started to think, like, what is that going to entail? He asked me a couple things. I told him about my grandfather. Kind of put me up on game with, like, the traditional jazz stuff. Like, he had me listening to good stuff when I was a really young kid. And I'm, like, so thankful for that because... I just gravitated towards it. You know what I mean? Um, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. He was just like, these are pillars of like the sound of like traditional big band. And he's like, if you're going to, if you're going to play in a band, you have to listen to the music. But that was before, was that before you were even playing an instrument? When he was, when I started playing, when I started playing sax, well, my grandfather would play records all the time and it was hella funny because he would be like, don't touch my records. You know what I mean? Which made me want to touch the records. Um, and uh, so he uh, he had been playing records just on his own, like not showing me shit. And I'd just be kicking it in the house and like hear him. And I'd be like, oh. And every, it was crazy because we'd be like, damn, Papa was crazy. Because he'd be I'm like, what is he doing over there? You know what I mean? This fool's going crazy. And so I would go over there and start talking to him, and he'd be like, yeah, check this out, check this out. So when I started playing saxophone, he just, he came right to me. And he's like, there's no use in you playing this if you ain't going to listen to it. Like, you're my grandson, you're going to listen to this shit. And uh, so he had me listening to, to good stuff. My dad had got me the, that Smithsonian jazz collection, which was very prevalent, super old at that time, but had Art Tatum and Count Basie and... Mingus and Duke Ellington and Burden Diz, all kinds of stuff that, that was my first introduction to like, this is the stuff that I have to listen to if I'm going to play this music. When when your teacher told you you don't even know where you come from, was he referring to like your family background? Uh, yes. Yeah. Because he knew my uncles and he knew my dad and he knew, he knew my family. The church that I'm talking about was a half mile away from the high school that he was teaching at. So, yeah. And so then you started playing with like the big band. The big band in high school, yeah. And it was a, it was it was cool because I mean they did play traditional stuff and jazz stuff, but it was like in a predominantly black and black and brown neighborhood. So it was like we you know we played some funkier stuff and soulful stuff too. So it was pretty cool. It was it was a good experience for me. And then we moved from East Stockton um, to North Stockton, and that's when. I started kind of really getting serious and studying. So I had a teacher who was uh, vice president of the California Band Directors Association. He picked the clarinets for Allstate. And so he had a really high bar and just knew where the bar was for you to get these accomplishments as far as county honor bands and Allstate honor bands. Because not to be rude, I didn't, I didn't know. He just pushed me, you know, and was like, this is what we're doing. This is what you need to do. And I just, I was thankful to have people like that when I was like that young and starting out. And, um, 
And your dad was, I mean, your family was supportive. Super supportive. Yeah, super support. Always. Through through the, the band stuff as a kid, and then, you know, my friend was telling me about this that I play music with now, and he was like, man, it's just so crazy. And I was like, what? And he's just like, I have so many memories of your mom and dad at our shows in Tahoe or San Diego or Seattle or San Francisco. Like, if they could make it, they were there. So, which was a lot of the time, they were there.
That was Splanky by Count Basie. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Jamal Tarkington about growing up in Stockton and finding music as a refuge from the turbulence of the 1980s in West Coast African American communities. Um, talk a little bit, like we talked the other day, you know, about what you mentioned too, about kind of your move from East Stockton to North Stockton and sort of what. It was crazy. It was, uh, you know, it was like this. Uh, we're talking about 1984 to 1980. Uh, my freshman year was 1986. So uh, crack hit like crazy. And it. I really didn't realize I had family in Los Angeles. I had family in Oakland. And I had family in Stockton. And I didn't realize how some of the things that I'm pretty sure that you've investigated as well to realize that like, those situations were choreographed. There was no one in East Stockton with fields of whatever, to, coca plants to process cocaine. That cocaine came from somewhere. Not only did it come from somewhere, it was directly pushed in certain areas. And when you realize that, like, I saw this thing the other day where these dudes were talking, and it was these guys that got out of jail, and they were talking about just opportunity. They were like, you think if I could have, like, went to school and then played basketball and then, like, had a job at the burger joint and, like, you know, made it. He was like, there was nothing for us. There was no programs. There was no nothing, you know. And he was, he was just like, that's why we, and, and we were broke as shit. And then we see these dudes walking by with, like, all this. He was like, of course. I mean, with our our immaturity, we gravitated towards it. You know, and it was so sensationalized as well, you know, but I don't think anyone realized that they were puppets. Like the people at the top were the ones who were, you know, really, really. So it was crazy with crack and gang violence when I was in seventh and eighth grade was ridiculous. Um, and crazy, there we would heard gunshots regularly you know, at least once or twice a week. We lived across the street from a park. Some bullets came through the window and stuck in the door. My mom and dad were educated and had jobs and, you know, not rich, but made money. So they were like, we got to get the hell out of here. And we had some family that lived on the north side. So we moved to the north side and the high school that I ended up going to um, had a really good band band uh, department and music department and a football team too, because I played football for, for and through discus, shot put discus as well. So. And tell me what you know. Also, what your dad kind of said to you. I don't know if it was back then or later on about sort of how music, like the fact that you were doing music, you know, meant that you know you were you weren't doing other stuff. No, yeah, no. It was when I was a kid and I started really playing. And you know, that was another thing. My grandfather would just kind of he, you know. He was like, man, you ain't going to be shit if you don't practice. Like, you got to practice. The cats that are the real cats, they put hours in, you know. And I was just, it, not to be weird, and he, he also made the statement. He was like, you have all the time in the world right now. You know what I mean? Your responsibility is like this to Neil. Like, you, you can put some time in on this. I remember being a kid and practicing and starting to put in hours a day. And my family would not bother me. They would not 
they wouldn't come in my room and hassle me. Sometimes, like, dinner would be ready, and my mom would just be like, "Let him, he's playing, let him play. Um, and it was cool, because it gave me that space to, like, kind of have that solitude and have that time to do what I needed to do to, like, to get familiar with music and this instrument. But it also was, uh, it gave me space. Like, you know, at that time, you, you're, like, I'm in the house. I remember having a conversation with my dad, and he told me, that he gave me that space when I was doing it and he was just like I could hear you like you know I didn't have to come in there and bug you but it was like you were constantly playing so it's like I was listening to everything that you were doing you know but he was like there's there at that time in my life there was so much crazy craziness right out the door you know right up the street you know like serious heavy shit and as he was just like, I, it was just blocks of times where I didn't have to worry about you. So we, we figured if you were in there and doing what you were doing, like, leave you alone. There'd be times where he would peek his head in and be like, mm, you got that? You know what I mean? He would mess with me every once in a while. Like yeah, well, he'd just be like, come on now. I tried to play trumpet for a little bit because he was like, what do you want to play? I was like, trumpet. Played trumpet for a very small amount of time and it just did not click. And we, he was like, we got to try something else. So, <laughs> He's like, I can hear you, but I don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it wasn't a diss. It was like, it was it was still encouraging, but it was just like, we're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to find something. We're going to find something. You're going you're gonna to link with something, you know. And it happened. It and did. that was baritone sax. It was alto originally. And then when I started playing, it was crazy because when I started playing baritone sax, I still had situations where I had to play alto. But I always tried to play Barry as much as I could. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I definitely, you know, want to get to kind of as many of your projects as possible. So let's, you know, let's kind of move to when you came to Reno and how did you end up here? Uh, I came here on a music scholarship. I came here for my junior year in high school. I came and uh, did the thing for the football team to to check out the squad. They they had, We had a good football team that we played in Stockton and Lincoln High School. And so uh, they kind of recruited me to check out to see if I wanted to come play football up here. That's what I was coming up here for. I had a friend who was in the music department, was an alto and baritone player, and he was like, man, you should bring your horn and just play what you played for your Allstate audition and audition for for the music department as well because I was going to be here for a weekend. I was like, all right. So I came up, and uh, I did, and... Like, I don't know, it was, I can't remember how long ago, how long it took, but it wasn't very long, and they called back and was like, oh, yeah, we have a space, and blah, 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 I want to give you a scholarship, and I was like, oh, I have another year left, and they were like, well, just call us when you graduate, so um, that's why I came to Reno, because I had that opportunity, and I'd been here for the music, there's a jazz festival that they have in April, every April at the university. And it's the whole region. So it's like people from Oregon all the way down to San Diego come to this festival. Colorado as well. Um, come to this music festival. High school, junior high school, college. Um, jazz festival. And so we had been going all four years in high school. We came up to that. So my mom and dad would come up here and gamble and hang out in Reno and or Tahoe. So the area was not too foreign to me. When I started coming up here for the jazz festival, I was just like, man, this place is, you know what I mean? It's, it's pretty cool. 
I met some people skating. Um, I met some people through some music stuff. So when I actually came up here, there were these guys that came up to me at the jazz festival, con- not the jazz festival, at the jazz concert at UNR when I was a freshman. And they were like, hey, man, like, uh, I had dreads at the time. They were like, uh, you play saxophone or you got dreadlocks. We're starting to ska band. Like, we, we need we want you to play the ska band. And I'm like, oh, And so we started talking about what they were trying to play and I asked them if they'd heard the Scottalites, and they were like, oh, yeah. And I was like, can we do something? They were like, yeah. So I was like, all right. So we started, it was, the group was called the Much Arts. Um, and uh, it had a lot of success. It was, I was, it's weird to me to realize how much success it had back at that time. Because um, I was young, and I was naive and very immature and just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. But uh, it did well. It was cool. Um we were on heavy rotation on a couple of Los Angeles and Sacramento, San Francisco, I think Colorado, and then here in town to where we were actually on heavy rotation to where, like, I don't even know what the big bands were at that time. Like, I always think, like, Nirvana or something like that. And then they would play our song, like, three days a week. I mean, three times a day. She's Leaving Town was the name of the song. Yeah. It was cheesy as hell, man.
That was Too Much Pressure by The Selector. You are listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. Today, we are in conversation with Jamal Tarkington about his formative years in the ska punk scene of the early 90s. This is 1990-91, right? Um, Talk a little bit about what Reno was like back then. It was very good old boy. It was very, I mean, the university was kind of like, there was really no midtown you know what I mean? It was it downtown was cracking at that time. The casinos were still still kind of blowing up way more than they are now. Um I had a couple of gigs at the Flamingo Hilton at the El Dorado. They had like these little lounges that we would play jazz and get like a hundred bucks a night. Um so I mean the, the the casinos were cracking. Um but we I literally stayed that's not true. Because we played in Sparks, and we played in Tahoe, and we played uh, South Arena at Cantina Low Station Hombres at the time was a place that we used to, like, blow up. And, uh, but it was, like, the early 90s, so it was, like, that that's, not to, like, put the adjective in front of it, but that cheesy sky punk was just so big at the time, whether it was Boston's or Let's Go Bowling, Skank and Pickle, No Doubt, Fishbone. Fishbone was one of the bigger ones. Uh, the Toasters also were really big. <coughs> oh, yeah. But that music was huge at that. Like you said, some of the first shows that you went to were those kind of shows because at that time, they were so, especially in the, were you in the Bay Area? Oh, yeah. You couldn't get away from it. <laughs> There's no way you could. You had three or four friends that were in a ska band when oh, yeah. you grew up. Like you couldn't get away from it. And so um, that music was like what was not only but it was a it was a portion of what was huge on the radio so it was it was different it was a different time like you know it wasn't like digital cells and stuff like that so it was like when i was 20 years old i was in a band that had a contract with caroline east and west caroline east and west was the distributor for sam goody for tower records for warehouse records and either mom and pop stores too could order from, from Caroline. But they those big stores that had everything, had our records. So it was like we 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 had this guy that was our bass player. Not the original bass player, but started playing with us when we really started making moves and stuff. And he was a stockbroker. His name was Rich Ray. He had a he had a office and a fax machine and was using the internet, you know what I mean? Like, when at first, I mean, I didn't, it's crazy, the, the things that he had at his, as tools to make us as professional as we was to where, where we we moved as fast as we did up the ladder. Because he, he saw potential in what we were already doing. And then once we, like, recorded the first album, um, that was probably the big thing. And then, uh, and really, was, really started touring. Was the first album recorded here at Granny's? Or at Granny, both of our albums were recorded at Granny's. Yeah, but Tom Gordon was the assistant, uh, which means he he really did all the work. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? And then Bjorn was like turning off, who was the main engineer. And some people don't know because, you know, Tom's still around, but Granny's not around. Granny's was in the old Southwest, right? It, no, it's right up the street on, uh, what is that, Mount Rose. Right on the corner of Mount Rose and, what is that, Plumas? Yeah. Um, Neil, uh, I'm trying to think what the, the, the producer that produced the album was working with Green Day at the time. And he also had a lot of, uh, um, like, got it to be as successful as it was. Cause, yeah. Well, talk about the scene, we, you, the scene in Reno, too, you know, because, like, part of, this, I've, you know, I've, you, you guys, you know, like, that was definitely something that is hard, it's a little hard to imagine these days. You know, you were a local band, but, like, you know, we were making, out. we were, we were, we got to a point where, I don't know who, it wasn't me, I don't know who had this idea, but they were just like, we need to book these gigs at these venues right across, there was a wall right across the street from the football stadium and the basketball stadium, so it's like a large portion of the school year, we just tag team on like home games. Oh, so you guys would play after the games. games. I mean, there was times where we didn't too, because there was times where after we got the ball rolling, we were just playing with bands who were big, like... When we played with No Doubt, I remember it being ridiculous. And we played with them like three or four times. When I'm talking about like the third time, I remember it being like, if you didn't come before the show started, you weren't getting in. And uh, we we found our ways as far as flying and, and doing, like I said, the, the fact that we had the song on the radio, once that happened, that kind of solidified like, kind of making ridiculous. I mean, not to be weird, if... I was making that money right now. I'd be like, this is ridiculous money. You know what I mean? We make good money. And it was, it, I was young. Like I said, I was young and I was immature and I didn't even realize yeah. what the hell was, was yeah. going on. And I'm sure time. it was awesome, right? To see people just kind of going off. You know? It was tight. It was, I mean, that was cool. The shows were cool. I think I was talking to you about this before. The thing that I, that I really started to, and this is, I don't know. I'm trying to think 21 was when I really started to think like this. Like, we were playing regularly in front of, like, big crowds. So it was almost like this, like, okay, you, you, you think you're a songwriter. Like, look at this band and look at the music that they write and look at the reaction that they get when they play these tunes live and, and they have this vehicle to get that music out, whether it was radio or whatever. Um... And, and see what you can do. Now, that's what I was telling you. We had a song that... It was the first song I ever wrote for the Mud Sharks. They was like, we need some songs to write a song. I was listening to Fishbone and shit like that at the time. So it was definitely kind of uh, influenced by that. But the song was called Don't Buy the Swag Bag. And there was this dude named Tazy Phillips. Uh, UC Irvine radio, radio station at the university. And it was a ska show called The Ska Parade. And he put this compilation out, and it had everybody on it. Um, like, all the bands I named, Sublime, Untouchables. I don't know if Fishbone was on it. Fishbone was too big at that time. But all the bands who weren't signed at that time, who were the big bands, were on that. And that compilation was so successful. This was before we had the radio success. This was from the first album that... uh we would go play in like LA or we would play in 
Irvine specifically and uh, um, we would play and people would be digging the show and dancing and having fun and then we would play Don't Buy the Swag Bag and they would lose their mind and I was like whoa and I not to be weird the song was alright it wasn't like it wasn't nothing to write home about. You know what I mean? It was like, how young was I at the time? And what was it about? <laughs> it, was, it was about buying bad weed in Reno. It was like being pissed for that. And the struggles of a young musician in Reno. Uh, but, um, no, man, the, the to see that reaction and go, oh, okay, well, they know this song. It's affiliation. So that's half the battle. You know, but... Aside from it, I was looking at these other bands we were playing with, who I think at the time was Real Big Fish at that show, and uh, I'm trying to remember who, oh, the Skeletones from Riverside. And so to see these bands who were getting these reactions because they were from, from the area, and they had songs that were on these different, whether it was University or K-Rock radio station. Um, and then it was nuts when we started playing with Sublime, and I actually, because we started playing with them when they were, like, when we started playing with them, half the shows that we played with them, we would headline. And then there were markets where they were better, so they would headline. But they had already put the album out, like, a while back. But Date Rape, that song took off on K-Rock in L.A. And I literally, like, watched shows go from 150 people, 200 people to, like, 3,000, like, I was just like, whoa, you know what I mean? So it was like, that, it, back then, I guess I would, I would equate that kind of radio play, which was never my focus. It's me personally. The song that the Mudsharks had that was the, the most successful radio song, I can't stand that song. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, please don't make me sing that shit again. But, when did you feel that way at the time? Yeah, I thought it was real cheesy. Yeah. I think we always had this thing of like some, uh, we would record stuff and then when we would play, we would definitely get stuff like a little bit more, more bite, more grit, more, you know, raw. And so it, it definitely was better. Um, but I mean, that song was just cheesy. So it was not, I mean, you couldn't, there wasn't much you were doing to that one. It's, it's going to be cheesy. Yeah. yeah, it was funny. But um, I did realize that, like, like I was about to say, I think that kind of radio coverage is, like, something that you would equate to, like, ridiculously, like, large social media numbers now to where, like, if you put up a post of you, like, writing a guitar part for one of your songs and it's, like, 600 people comment on it in four hours or something like that kind of thing to where you have that much connection and that much people tapping into your thing. Is what I would equate it to, and I, I like I said, I didn't, I didn't even realize it was that at the point. I knew that we were, I had friends who were in bands who were successful, and they not to be weird, they were our peers, so I knew we were having some success. But yeah, it wasn't until things moved on where we were trying to, and that, you know, I give a lot of credit to Rich because he did so much business stuff that like I didn't have to deal with anything. As far as that was concerned. Do you remember, we didn't talk about this, but do you remember kind of like the first time like you guys were playing in town and then like 
a bigger band from out of town came to play with you guys, you know, and that was, I'm just kind of trying to picture in my head the first glimpse of, like, that larger world, you know, not because obviously playing big band shows and stuff is different from, um, like, I don't know, you know, rock concerts and stuff. For sure. Do you remember, like, what Some of the bigger first shows that we played, I remember, um, we did do a tour, we did some shows with the specials, we did some shows, we did a tour, a national tour with the Selector, I think that was 94, that was like our first national tour, and uh, I remember pl- like playing with bands like that to where, when we would, like we would, so we played the show with, we played the shows with the Selector, we never really toured the East Coast, so no one really knew who we were, people were digging it, it was cool and stuff, but as we came to the West Coast, and it was like spots where we had been putting in work. They they were like they were like I mean they respected us as musicians, our show and stuff like that. But it was like that's when they were like, oh man, you guys are now I understand why they put it, put you guys on this tour. You know, it was like it was cool. It was cool to get that respect from them. Uh, John B- Bradbury, rest in peace, was the drummer from the Specials, but he also did the tour with the Selector when we did that national tour. So I had two years of playing with him. You know, the specials are, like, legendary. And he was, like, the homie. And, like, every like every chance we would get, we'd just break off and smoke. And he would tell me stories. And I guess he had a... Uh, which, I, damn, man. I, he passed a couple years back. But he had a soul label from the UK where he was putting out, like, throwback soul bands. And this was 1995. You know, and he was putting out bands that were doing like '60s type stole stuff, and I was just like, "Damn, yeah." John was John was uh, it was super cool to link up to link up with him. There's been a couple of uh, friendships that I've gained through music from not, not. Of course, I have my Rodney and Tristan and Ryan and Dan and all the people here in town that we've played music with and stuff. Um, but I guess I'm talking about like uh, Chris Dowd from Fishbone. We have a group called the First Cuts, and it's like it was crazy when my boy, who's the drummer in the band, he was like, "Oh, I can't wait till you and Chris get to like talk and hang out." You know, we were at his house. He had a studio in his house at the time, and we were rec- went down there to record tracks. And then Chris came over. It was the first time we we had met him before because we had played with Fishbone before. But I had never, like, kicked it with him. So it was cool to kick it, and we were laying horn parts, so he saw that and stuff. And then from that to, like, now, it's like, he's one of my best friends. Like, we talk, like, I talk to one of my best friends. And it's crazy that, to have someone that I looked up to so much. Like, I remember my sister first gave me the tape of Fishbone, and I listened to it. I had no idea they were black. Had no idea. I was just like, this shit is cool. And then the EP actually came out. And it had a picture of him on the back. And I was like, oh, like, all these motherfuckers are like you, man? Like, what? So it was like, you know, that was that was an empowering. That was a thing that drove me to do the stuff that I did when I did come here with some of that stuff. So, <clears throat> but to, I tell them all the time. I'm just like, this is weird that we are this close and like we you know what I mean we we t- tell each other everything family sh- everything and he lives in LA 
So I have a lot of family down there, and when I go down and visit, we always kick it. was Don't Buy the Swag Bag, a song Jamal wrote and performed with his early band, The Mud Sharks. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Jamal about Kaiser Soze, his next project, in which he moved towards more traditional Jamaican and soul styles as he developed his songwriting voice. What was kind of your evolution? So this, you know, you were playing sax in that band. Saxon singing a little yeah, bit. Well, well, that was the whole thing. Paulo was in the band, and this was the lead singer of the band, and he he stopped playing, and then he started playing, and so it got to a point where I was singing his songs, which I didn't. A, a couple of them, I was like, I'm not going to sing that stuff. 
but the songs that we had that were like big songs, I had to sing them. And so we, we, I, not to be weird, I was kind of sergeant at arms with that shit. And I was like, if we're going to play this shit, like, I'm going to get this shit tight, you know. And we were doing professional stuff, so it was almost half the band, the rhythm section, were older dudes. They were like 40 when we were like, you know, young 20s. And so uh, I kind of took it upon myself to like, it wasn't like a talk thing, but it was like, can you really play? You know what I mean? And then the people were like, oh, you know what I mean? Kind of like, all right, here we go. So we got pretty tight. And then it was like a back and forth thing. There was some real weird that happened at a show in Slims. And I when that happened, when, when the miscommunication happened, I just said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not fun for me. I'll go do something by myself. And I had, got, I had gotten Rodney to play trombone in Kaiser, so he was like, I'm going to play with you. So we went and started Kaiser Soze. And what was the kind of idea behind that band? You know, what, what, like, Kaiser? Originally, yeah, yeah. Originally, it was like ska punk stuff, so it was like really influenced by Fishbone or Op IV or the specials. But after a couple of years, you know, that, that sound and that kind of stuff kind of died out, and we, I mean, I think it was just like a natural progression possibly for me because I was doing a lot of the coordinating and facilitating of the writers of the group. I mean, I wrote for the group too, but we all wrote. But I was just, it It went to a traditional Jamaican thing and like a soul thing. And that's, that's where, I mean, we're a horn band, but it's like, now it's like, it's real throwback. That's what the sentiment of it is. So it's like, uh, we got we had a label, um, Rockin' Records, from Germany that picked us up, and we put out. We had an album that we already recorded, and they picked that out and distributed it in, in Europe, and then we put out an album, The Remedy, through that label, and we toured. Um, it's like fifteen countries, so went to Europe and did a big tour, and had it was time of our lives first time you know me and Rodney had been asked several times uh, Michael Franti was good friends of ours and wanted us to do some horns and stuff for us on some tours once and we always kind of we were like man I don't want to I don't want to go to tour to Europe and like play some other body, play someone else's stuff you know we had friends who had had success the, the Agri Lights and, and different bands and they were like man why don't why aren't you guys going over there you know like what's up so we were supposed to go do our second tour. It was a month before we were supposed to go. All the posters, all my friends were sending me posters of like, you know, our full tour poster like all over in like Milan and like Berlin and like all these big cities and stuff. We were so stoked. Paulo, who was the original lead singer from the Mud Sharks, me and he, not me, he rebuilds vintage Vespas and we've always been scooter boys and into Vespas and I bought one from him and he rebuilt this thing that it was so it's sitting in the hallway it's it was so nice when 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 we got it running and shit and uh so I was going up the street to get two stroke oil to mix with the gas to like fill it up going up Forest Street and this dude smashed me and you know we we our tickets were bought like advertising done like tour booked I mean and it, 
I felt bad because no one really came to me and was like, oh, like, the tour. You know what I mean? Everyone was, I was devastated. I was, I was broke. So everyone was kind of worried about me. You know what I mean? I, I had some really bad injuries that I had to, like, do some significant amount of physical therapy to get to get over in surgeries for a number of years. And now I'm still dealing with court case stuff to this day about this thing, so... You know, I um, forgot about that, that, that I remember now, because I knew you already at that point, and I, I, I just now remembered, yeah, that you guys had this tour booked, and that that accident yeah. just messed that all up. I just yeah. based on that. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was, uh... It, I, I mean, there was, you know, there was... It was weird, because you know how social media is. There was a couple of booking agents that we had over there who had become my friends. I'd never even met them before. And, like, so my friend, my, my one really good friend, Saba, she was in Germany. And she was just like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, my family wants to meet you. And, like, we're all blah, 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 blah. And to this day, I've never met her. You know what I mean? But, you know, that, that woman put in so much time to book our shows and all that stuff. And, like, she was going to get, re- but didn't get anything. You know? And it's just like that kind of stuff was... I, would, I mean, of course, I wanted to heal and I wanted to be able to walk again because at first they were like talking about they were going to take my leg off, and you know, and uh, I had a couple of friends that were, they were just like, that's not, that's not the case. That's not what's going to happen. Um, mechanic was the one. He said, uh, I don't give a shit what they say. He's like, if I have to build a pulley in your room so you can move your leg and get your leg moving, you're, we're going to get this shit moving. He's like, they're down. Yeah. You're not losing your damn leg, you know? And here it is. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I had, I... A lot of support. Yeah. Man, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have made it through that without the people who were behind me when that happened. It was crazy, dude. I still am kind of in awe and shock. My mom was just like, my mom is hard. My mom is like, I can't even, on top of the, like, health stuff and the the operations and the hospital stuff uh the court stuff man was a a mental drag you know what i mean and she was here for i couldn't go to it because i was a witness in it but every time something happened she came up from california and went to every everything she was like i'm going ahead you know what i mean so it was like it was a trip but nice to have a lot of that you know under the down and past and like moving forward yeah so um i do want to ask kind of what do you think it is like as far as music stuff goes you know that like people tend to kind of there's this predictable path you know where people sort of you know that you grow up with sort of influences from like your family and your background and then teenage years you know you go off and you do your you know other crazy thing musically you know and you're you know it's still part of you but usually you know people get a little older Oftentimes, they end up kind of coming back to, to a lot of those roots. You know, definitely. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. It's it's a it's definitely a weird thing because I remember like all the soul stuff um, that my dad and his brothers and my uncles were were involved in, and I'm I'm like I didn't want to have anything to do with it at the time. You know, I was I I I think I just wanted my my space. So, like, no one was really heavy in the jazz. So, I was like, that's my lane. I'm going to do this jazz thing. 
And then, uh, you know, when I found, like, the reggae and the ska thing, I was like, oh, another lane. Like, that's, you know what I mean? That's my thing. But it's so crazy that those things are so tied to that soul music, which is inherently church music as well. Um, But, yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, I I definitely... uh, um, it definitely does feel like a thing of like coming back to, you know, I have an uncle, his name is Keith and he is a, a ridiculous, still alive. He's, I don't know how old my uncle Keith, I don't know how old he is. Ridiculous singer. Got that high, that soprano, that Philip Bailey, Earth, Wind and Fire. And this was a number of years ago, we were at the family reunion and he was telling me he was writing some songs and he started singing and stuff for me and stuff and of course it was vocally it was you know it was good soulful stuff but it was it was christian baptist jesus you know what i mean it was it was gospel music and i told him i was like you know i'm not telling you what to do and this was i don't know this i'm trying to think six years ago eight years ago i was like man there's this thing going on where everybody is trying to go back to the stuff that you guys were doing when i was a kid the stuff that you know, you, when you guys were young adults, the stuff that you were doing, they're trying to go back. It's like throwback soul stuff. And I was like, you just need to write that shit that you was writing back then. And you, you know what I mean? You'll, you'll mess around and be playing festivals this summer, you know? And I was just like, it was crazy because to, to, to realize that like that type of music was like the roots of like what my family's music that they were successful in developed into as far as my uncle Wayman or my father who was in a doo-wop group called the Pond's Chess and and like the stuff that they were doing and then my uncle my other uncles in the California Malibus it was all that stuff. I mean it's so it's crazy and it's a couple of them did have records I have a California Malibus record um but I'm still looking for that that original press of that that one from my Uncle Wayman. Hopefully, we're going to do this repress with this label from from Japan. Hopefully, we can get that knocked out within the next year because I think that would be a good thing for for the family and I think just to get that music out there, I think people would dig it. So.
mash it up, we both hit two strut. I do that rock steady sound so crucial, 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 crucial. Them nice and tough, split it just enough. Yes, and all we needed was two pulls, two pulls, two And the way you look tonight makes me wanna get next to Yes, yes, yes. Maybe you'll walk outside after the second Saturday. Hold on, that the test good as 
That was Tonight by Jamal's band Kaiser Soze. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. Today, we are in conversation with Jamal Tarkington about Who Cares, a collaborative Reno-Sacramento hip-hop project he has been involved in for years. Yeah, um, yeah let's, yeah, we didn't get a chance at all to kind of talk about Who Cares and, you know, um, so tell me about, yeah, other than, other than Kaiser, you know. So I had one of my, did. one of my best friends. Who Cares Connection is all through graffiti. Like, we are a music bit. It's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a music thing, but it's an art thing as well as it's a music thing. Um, that's a big part of it. And that connection was, like, the art and the visual aspect of it. One of my, one of my best friends, um, we used to throw these jams at the Zephyr. And that wall, we would paint that wall every summer. And we DJ in the, right there in that parking lot, and like that right there, and like in, I mean, it, it used to go off. We called it, we called it Hot August Nights, and we started calling it Hot August Fights because there was a bunch of crazy shit that happened. But uh, so we started getting you know, Hot Crew was the crew from that was Bo, Rakos, and uh, Smut, and Ezo were the main dudes here from Hot Crew Beats. Um, jazzy and uh, I met those guys and they we were throwing a jam and our boy at the time wrote else but he right now he writes steel he was uh, coming up and he was like oh my homeboy from sack is coming with me and at the time I was actually doing some of the first like hip-hop stuff that I was doing probably like trying to be like some roots stuff this dude named Grant Levin um, who lives in the Bay Area, a ridiculous piano player, and then Rufus Hariti, who still lives here in Reno. We had a group called the Earl Jones Trio, and it was it was some hip-hop shit. It was like trying to be like the Roots. And uh, I had recorded a couple songs, and we went to go to Bo's house to like link up before we were going to go to this jam. And so my boy Jeff comes in, and he was like, oh, this is my homeboy Ernie, and he's a, he's got a group. They, they do some, some hip-hop out of sack and I was like oh yeah and he's like yeah and he's like we recorded some shit this week and I was like what he's like yeah I was like I recorded some shit yesterday and he was so he played his stuff and then I played him my stuff and he was just like whoa 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 so we were party rocking and DJing and stuff and ended up getting on the mic they had a show not too long after that and he knew that I was a sax player and I'd never played over any of their music or anything and he was like yeah you should come out and like you know so I came out and played with him, and it just started clicking. And then I think right after that was when I went to Max's house, who was making the beats at the time and playing keyboard. And uh, that was when we were recording the parts for the first LP. And then right after that, not too long after that, was the winter came back, which I think was... I can, uh, teenage, teenage Ego Trip, that other, our other full-length album was good and had success too, but I, I just the sound and like the... Everything that we were doing as far as linking Sacramento and Reno at that time, that that music is uh, is special in, in a way that's like, I played in a bunch of bands. I had a dude at the co-op walk up, so I just saw Ryan, when I realized Ryan was doing his thing, saw him there, so we started talking. He was like, oh yeah, I'm on the coffee shop, whoop, whoop, whoop. 
And this kid was just like, he looked at me and I was just like, what's up? He's working there. I, I got to be stop saying that. He wasn't a kid. He might have been, he might have been 30 years old. I was like, this kid. But this dude looked at me and he's like, yo, are you sax? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh man. Like, you don't, he just was, you know, he was like, I don't mean to bug. And I was like, oh, it's cool. You know, they wasn't busy. And I was waiting in line to pay for my stuff. And he just went into the story about, like, how he grew up on that music. And that it, like, helped him so much through some real heavy shit that he was going through growing up. And uh, he was like, you come here? And I was like, I live a block away. And he was like, oh, man, this is crazy. And, and so I like the next time I came through, I left some stuff for him and and stuff. But it's it has been something to where like there's been a couple situations where I've had people literally like come to me and be like, and this is like a, a reoccurring thing. Like I thought it was over, like I was giving up, and like this helped me realize that a I wasn't the only one who felt like that, but b like we can find these things to like get us through this. And he was like, that was this music, you know? And I was, I... And are people talking about who cares? Yeah. I knew, I knew, Ernie is ridiculous, man. As a lyricist, it's like, he sat, he sat right there where you are and wrote stuff, wrote a verse and wrote a chorus and then left. Like, didn't even keep it. And I have it. And I read it like two, find it and just read it like two weeks later. And I'm just like, you know, and I hit him up. I'm like, did you, did you, did you, no, I don't want that. You know what I mean? As a writer, man, he, he is, he's, he's a storyteller. Um, he definitely gives that. And and it's, you know, I think, I don't think he was doing it in any kind of aspect to be, I think he was just being himself and expressing himself. But what it, what it ended up doing, I mean, I, I heard what he was saying and I heard, like, what the, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to think what DJ Shadow, Portishead, like, what we were really pulling from when we were making that sound and that music at that time. And it's like, I tried to employ the things that I put into it to be, like, I wasn't, I, I was thinking more sonically than I was thinking about, but the sonic portion of it went with what was going on. And it just clicked. Yeah, I mean, for some reason, because like I said, that that whole I've played in several bands, and it's like we went on a tour with Pigeon John, and it was like thirty days. We went to South by Southwest, met Daniel Johnston. Uh, who cares? Is super tired. I think we're gonna. Like I said, we got this. Ernie said he's down to do that show, so we're gonna. We have a show that we're gonna do with Egyptian Lover and Sack, and then we're gonna do that Holland Project show. So hopefully we can get some people to, uh, there's enough people that are our age who have kids. I'm like, bring your kids out. That's what this is about. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, and you know, man, I'm just thinking about it now kind of to bring it full circle to like talking about family and roots and this kind of stuff. Um, especially right now, like including COVID and in general, like there is, there's a little bit of like a, generational gap almost you know with certain types of music and influence you know mm-hmm. and I think I think it applies to a lot of worlds not just to the kind of hip-hop world but I think that yeah sometimes there seems like there's a lack of um, 
you know, it's a cheesy word, but like mentorship almost, you know, or kind of like young people don't, they don't always have to like find role models or whoever, whatever you want to call it locally, you know? I, I guess the thing that I would say is like in jazz music, especially when you get to these like, let's say elitist levels or whatever, but it's like cats are like, oh, well, who did you study with? You know what I mean? And when it comes to hip hop, whether that's graph or whether that's, uh, you know, music, like, like making rap music, it's like, there's definitely like a lineage thing that has to do with it. Like, as far as like, where are you coming from? You know what I mean? As far as people, not to say people being accepting of you, but. Yeah. And like kind of creating some kind of like, you know, lineage or whatever, you know, where you kind of have like, um, you know, I mean, it's just the way that like people function sort of, you know, where it's like, if you're, I mean, when you're young, the thing is when you're a young person coming up, going in your own lane, right. You kind of want to be like, I'm inventing this, you know, this is my thing. No one's ever Mm -hmm. done it before, you know, but it's at some point in most people's lives, you know, they start to identify like, I mean, usually there are people that are older than them, but yeah, they kind of find the, their lineage, they kind of fit in, and then you find that, like, there's so much, like, richness to be gotten just from, like, that, you know, that, mm-hmm. like, you might, and, and then you also just kind of realize that, like, you know, whatever you think you're inventing or whatever, you're never, yeah. yeah, you're never, you're never doing that, you know, and it makes more sense to sort of create that connection, you know? I definitely think uh, when we were talking about Reno and you were asking about like when I first came here, one of the things that was so tight was like the skating community. I remember John Broadhead had uh, Skino at the time was the skate shop. And uh, I had a bunch of friends, old dudes a little bit older than me that were hardcore skaters and stuff. And uh, Skinny used to have his ramp. All those, I've met so many good people that like as, as, you know, because I'll be, I'll be, you know, I came from, I came from where I, the neighborhood that I grew up in, which is predominantly, you know, black and brown people, to where when I went to high school, it wasn't the case. It was the north side. It was middle class to, to upper class people. So it was a lot, there was a very small amount of black people that went to my high school. When I came to college and came to Reno, it was, let's say it was culture shock when I realized that it was like, whoa, it's a real smaller community of people of color here um there were people who just made me feel in a skating community when i when i think about skinny and his ramp um when i think about skino when i think about the punk scene that was here at the time i was talking to you about greg allen who is a really ridiculous local artist still lives in reno as far as visual artists but uh he had a band called baby oil handjob and the other band was uh, Short Fuse. Those are my two favorite punk bands when I first came here. And I'd seen them play at Gilman. So when I came and I was like, oh, these dudes are from Reno. And I was like, yeah, I was like, well, cool. This is something for me to like, you know what I mean? Get away from the jazz shit and go skate and like hang out at these punk shows. But there's a lot of skinheads around at the time. I mean, there was, there was a, there was, the scene was I wouldn't say a lot of skinheads. Enough to make me feel fucking uncomfortable, you know? And those dudes had my back. Those dudes had my back in a couple of different situations. So it was like, that also made me feel more comfortable. I really liked Tahoe and stuff, you know, and Pyramid when I first came here. I was just like, wow, like this is, 
we don't got no shit like this in Stockton, you know what I mean? This is crazy. So, um, yeah, man, Reno is, is, is as casino driven and possibly like that good old boy mentality was here. I found quick circles of like underground shit that was just like tight here, especially like with the graffiti scene, with the skating scene, with the punk rock scene. And then, like I said, mud sharks and that stuff, they, we had our success or whatever we were doing. And then the music department stuff and jazz stuff, that was cool too. But, um, yeah, man, it was, it was, uh, I remember going into Tower Records when I first came here and I was like, oh, I want to see if you guys have that specials record. And he was just like, what are you talking about? And I was like, ska music? You guys have a ska section? And he was like, what? I was just like, ska? I was like, I was like, fool, do you work at Tower Records? Do you know? Do you know? Yeah, just wait. I was like, come on, yeah. <laughs> Violence. He thinks about his sister and his 
Jesus But when everybody saw his bloody heart hurt They knew he was an angel who got trapped on earth That was Heaven Ain't Hard by Who Cares. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Jamal about the community he has found for himself here in Reno. So what, uh, just to kind of wrap up, you know, tell me about some of the projects that you're working on now, music-wise. Um, we got an album that's all done um, for our acoustic group. I don't even know what the name of the group is. It was Verbal Kent, and now we're trying to change it to Dark Corners, but I don't know what the hell we're going to call it, whatever it is. But the music is really, I, I'm I'm feeling it. The songs, some of the songs we've been writing for probably too long, and then we wrote a couple of songs like right before we started recording. But uh, Sam and I is a bass player, originally from Reno, went to McQueen and stuff. Uh, Caleb Dollister is a drummer, also from Reno. I think Caleb's in, Caleb's in San Francisco and Sam's in New York, but these dudes are like super accomplished, like badasses, and uh, they recorded bass and drums, and then Sam did the mixing and mastering, and it it was it was it was so nice to have to not do anything. <laughs> and he just did it all, and it it sounds really really good. So we're going to be putting that stuff out this summer. Um, and uh, the First Cuts is a group. It's a studio group right now. But it's Chris Dow from Fishbone. Uh, Blake Coley from The Lions and Arise Roots. Uh, Roger Revis is in Long Beach Dub All-Stars and Adrolites. And then his stuff, Roger Revis. And then uh, me and Rodney are playing horns. And uh, Chris Brennan. Also, is from Agrilites and uh, Arise Roots. Um, is playing guitar, but we're uh, it's a recording group, and we I gave you that forty five. We put that out in two thousand 
2019 it came out. Um, and we haven't, re- it's crazy, we haven't really done that much with it here. It's had a lot of success in the UK and Japan because certain labels that picked it, not to be weird, but Chris and Roger too. I mean, I, and I'm not hating on Blake or, or Chris Brennan either, but Chris Dowd is from Fishbone and Roger is from the Agrilites. So those dudes both have stuff where overseas, like people are like, what? You know what I mean? When you say those names. So, um, there was a radio station over there that I picked up the song and played it on the radio. And so, uh, there were a couple of, we've been doing pretty good with those records over there, but we haven't really done that much here. I think the first thing we're going to do is that thing that I was telling you about this July, where we're going to bring Chris out here to play with Kaiser. So we're going to play those songs when, when he comes out. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, that band is recording. I think there's like six songs we're going to try to do a full album this year and put that out but it's the sound is i'm really digging it yeah and otherwise like you know day to day right you spend a lot of time teaching that's pretty much what i do tuesday to thursday i teach saxophone lessons and then we run two saxophone quartets so yeah band nerd stuff midweek and then yeah and kaiser has a bunch of songs um not a bunch but several songs and we're gonna we're, we are going to record Hopefully this summer, and uh, hopefully be releasing some stuff in the fall, winter. But and when you teach kids, do you like to kind of indoctrinate them a little bit too? You know, with your no, I tell them all the time. One of my students is she's good too. She's a good saxophone player, and I told her she was like, "Well, she's playing Barry sax now." And we've been talking about tone and mouthpieces and stuff like that. And I guess some friend that's a friend of hers was like, "Oh." what like listen to this and she was like oh that's who cares and there's these two really short songs on the first album that it's just like a beat playing with me blowing over it and she was like she she transcribed it and so she was like look at this look at what I did and blah 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 and I was like oh seen it like written out and I was like well this here we gotta change this right here and fix it and then she was like oh I want you to and I was like no you gotta go to this real you got to learn this real stuff first, you know? Uh, yeah. No, but I, to- I, I, that's not true. I told her, I was like, if you handle your stuff, I'll show you whatever you want. Whatever you want me to show you, I'll show you what I did. And yeah. Yeah, but you got to yeah. start with the roots is what you're saying. I just think there's, you know, yeah. I think, um, I think the, the finding those people and finding those spaces that get you listening to those things that like is that real sound for like the the, the music that you're listening to um it's important and those people are important and those spaces are important so it's like when you find those record stores or when you find those like bands or groups of people that like you know my friend Blake who's the drummer in uh, the first cuts like we he two gigs and he went to Cal Arts studying um, African drumming and it's like I haven't even got to the melodic stuff I'm still on the traditional drumming stuff just from Senegal and Mali there's like 30 countries man there's so it's the, the it is deep you know what I mean and it's like so it's like that's our thing that we kind of are fixated on now 
But, and not to be weird, that's for me is almost even going more back to the roots to be like, this, this is essentially where it all came from. But it's tight, man, because it's like, it's, it's, it's crazy to see the progression and the evolution. And especially now, like I was talking to one of my students the other day about scales. And I was like, well, you know, scales or tonality, a lot of them come from regional origins. Like, you know what I mean? Like, blah, blah, blah. This is, this is a acidic minor scale. Or this is the natural minor scale, and it's, it is, you know, like, Persian, kind of like, this is, so they're, like, related to different areas, and uh, when you start to find those parallels and stuff like that, it's, you know, in my old age, I'm starting to really dig that kind of stuff, man, to, like, really put together, like, where, where not only where it comes from, but, I mean, we were talking about, Blake was telling me the story, so there's this family in Africa they're drummers, and this is a, a constant thing that they do in these communities back there. So there's this, this uncle, great uncle, who's like this master musician, and he's about to stop playing, being the principal musician for not only the community, but the tribe and all this stuff. And not only does he make these songs, and not only does he carry the torch of playing all these traditional songs that have been passed down, but he is like the most skilled drummer and it's like this this priestly thing that goes along with it. So there's all these other younger musicians in the family who are learning this tradition. Only one of them gets to be that. And so he was showing me songs that were not only the 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 ones that were handed down from the ones who were like the masters from before, before and stuff but he was showing me stuff of like these ones where essentially family members were kind of battling with each other to see like who's going to get this next position and it's like not to say it like that but it's cutthroat and it's heavy and it's like serious lineage stuff you know what I mean and it's it's crazy to see I mean, I guess he said some of these songs are 8,000 years old. And it's like, I'm like, what? That's that's crazy. And it's it's all this tradition. And, like, to be able to learn this stuff in Africa is, like, nuts because it's just so many regions. Like I said, that hard drive that I have only has 30 different, and they, they say it's something like, you know, 50, 58 to 60, like, different classifications of like specific bigger genres of African music it's just like that's nuts all based on the instruments that they use because they have these things that are made out of gourds and gourds grow in that area so that's why they use these instruments and over here they have these things that are made from these palms that, you know what I mean it's like everything is connected to nature and connected to the place so it's super cool to like really start to dig into that stuff. The African stuff has been like kind of a focus for me here lately. So and that's just a that's just a scholarship thing. That's just a like me. I'm not playing that music. I don't own any African drums. I don't sing any African songs. It's just me trying to like the I guess it's like the new thing that I've that I've kinda found myself like just gravitating towards lately. So and it's so vast that it's like, whew, it's nuts.
it's even bigger than Jamaica. I thought Jamaican music was crazy. It's like how much stuff they had. A little ass island and how much stuff come. When you start talking about Africa, it's not. And then when you realize the Nyabingi and the the Jimbe and all the connection from Jamaica to Africa, it ma- it just starts making more sense. It's crazy. It's nuts. Today, we were in conversation with Jamal Tarkington about music, roots, Reno, all kinds of stuff. Talking to Jamal, you are impressed by his knowledge of the vast world of music, but even more so by his pure passion for it, for playing, for listening, for sitting around and chatting about it. Sitting on his couch up in his apartment at the Riverside Artist Lofts, taking in story after story about his decades performing and just fully living what you could call the music life, I really felt that I was in the presence of someone special someone who comes from deep musical roots, who's to say how far back they really go, and who has spent years and years nurturing and growing his own branch of that strange and beautiful tree that goes by various names, art, expression, race, culture. The first attempt at this interview, my silly little digital recorder crashed, and I lost two hours of our conversation. I came back a few days later, and we talked for two hours more. And at the end of that, I still felt like we had just grazed the surface of Jamal's rich experience and bottomless passion for jamming, singing, sharing, and connecting through music and more to others. Thanks for listening. Till next time, this was Soft Power Radio. It appears so. You don't seem happy about it. What's just the... Oh, I like it here. I don't want to leave. I just want to ask you some questions about the spaceship. The count is picked up at zero, minus ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, 